This morning, we're wrapping up the summer season with the last of a three-week mini-series. And uh, as I've been sharing, um, instead of introducing something new when I got back into the pulpit uh, two weeks ago, um, this being the third one, I decided I um, was better off connecting back to what Josh had laid as a foundation uh, in the early part of the summer, his series on 1 Corinthians 13, What's Love Got to Do With It? And so I'm trying to look, uh, lead us to look under the hood a bit to explore a few thoughts on this biblical ideal of love. Week one, we asked this question, what motivates love? And from John chapter 5, Jesus' teaching to his disciples, we uh, found out that we are all glory seekers. We're all chasing after something in life. That's what motivates us. Last week, the question was, what do you really love? And we said that most of us can't really answer that question about our own hearts. We don't pay attention enough to what has a hold of our hearts, even though the heart drives what we do and say and think as the seat, as the center of our identity. This morning, we're going to turn to Revelation and hear Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus, a major port city in the modern-day country of Turkey. Uh, It was a leading church even back in the day, originally planted by the Apostle Paul, but one which Jesus says has lost her first love. Revelation 2, listen carefully. These are God's words. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this vision given to the Apostle John by Jesus himself. Thank you for its truth, Lord. Not only its encouraging truth, but also its wounding for healing kind of truth. We pray, Father, that we would hear Jesus speaking these words freshly to us today, that we might apply it, be cut to the heart in um, an awareness of our own sinfulness, of our own Ephesian-like living, thinking, believing, and find grace in repentance, find forgiveness through your cross. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. We're using a marriage metaphor this morning because that's the primary biblical metaphor we find from Genesis through Revelation. Um, It's uh, the metaphor that is behind losing your first love. And so we start with courtship and marriage, a little bit of background foundation laying first. In Acts chapter 18, Paul first visited Ephesus and um, evangelized the people and started the church from scratch. He planted it. 
that was around the year 52 A.D. On his next missionary journey, he stayed for about three years and developed affection for the Ephesian people. And in an emotional farewell to her leaders, the elders, he shared these words, which are very relevant in um, Revelation chapter uh, 2 here. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Those Those were no doubt sober words for a church to hear from the chief apostle himself as they were thriving spiritually at the time, and he's warning them with his last words, be on guard. That was around the year 57 A.D. And then a few years later, from afar, likely in prison in Rome, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, which is in our Bibles, as an epistle. And since John's revelation, last book of the Bible, which we read from, is uh, likely dated in the mid-90s A.D., we put the pieces together and we realize that the Ephesian church, when Jesus is dictating this letter to them, is over 40 years old. A second, maybe even third generation was leading the church, and they had lost their first love. Things had changed since The initial believers had placed their faith in Jesus, likely at great cost to themselves and their family because of persecution. It wasn't an easy decision to make. And since then, they slowly lost the zeal, the affection, the love for Christ that their parents and grandparents had had at first. Back in the Old Testament, we see a a similar generational decline. After Joshua had led the people into the promised land, they found rest And sometimes rest leads to complacency. This is what Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 7 says, "...the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel." Verse 10, "...after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the local false gods." It's so easy to assume that faithfulness to God, zeal for Christ will simply be passed on down the generations, but the biblical record shows us and sobers us up to realize that's often not the case. Be on guard. Keep watch, Scripture says. You know, this hopefully gives you a a sense, if you've ever wondered, why Grace Redeemer Church devotes so much time and energy and resources and finances and leadership to children's ministry and youth ministry. It it happens to be, chicken and egg, that God has brought us a ton of little ones and young people. But um, uh, this kind of sober reality that Scripture itself reminds us of keeps us doggedly after the next generation. And and parents, by the way, uh, we always need to remind uh, ourselves, it's not Karen and her team in children's ministry, and it's not Josh and his team in youth ministry that are responsible for evangelizing, shepherding, discipling your kids towards maturity in Christ. It's your responsibility as parents 
as grandparents, as uncles and aunts, and even the extended community, but first and foremost, in the home. And the ministries are here to resource you, to equip you, to um, encourage you in the tough sledding that is called parenting and raising your kids in Christ. Why these repeated examples from biblical history show us how easily the next generation can drift from faith and faithfulness. Be on guard. This fall, we'll be talking about our efforts as a church to purchase a building and property in order to secure a new home from which to engage in gospel ministry for generations to come. We are thinking about our children and our grandchildren and those in Bergen County who will come into this area, perhaps as immigrants, perhaps uh, as uh, folks taking a new job in New York City. And we want there to be a, a light, a lampstand in its place, plugged into the power source that is Jesus, shining light. But none of that means anything. If we get this gorgeous building in a great location and we achieve financial stability and space stability in long-term presence in the town, none of that means anything unless the gospel remains at the core of who we are. And one of the main metaphors the Scripture uses is calling believers in Jesus Christ the bride of Jesus. The church is the bride. And I use that biblical metaphor because a real, a healthy, a vibrant marriage between the church and the groom, who is Jesus, always involves a mutual love affair. It, it requires, it expects, it naturally has an affection for, we have an affection for and a delight in who Jesus is and what He's done for us. When Jesus says to the Ephesian church, you've lost your first love, it's a call to a bride who has turned away. Leads us secondly to trouble in paradise. Let's look a little bit more closely at Jesus' message to this church. Um, in these two chapters, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, Jesus dictates uh, letters to seven different churches, and in each of the letters, He follows the same pattern. And uh, the pattern um, includes, at the beginning of these letters, positive things to note. He commends them for certain um, characteristics. Uh, so, first part of verse 2 here, uh, Jesus notices faith working itself out in deeds. Faith not just in the ivory tower, faith working itself out in action, uh, diligence, perseverance. There's a zeal for ministry. Second part of chapter 2, He commends them for solid theology, for biblical fidelity. They have the courage to test and then to expose what is false, heresy, and who is false, imposters. And Jesus says, you're doing a good job in this. Verse 3, they've endured suffering for Jesus. They continue to press on towards the goal. They've um, come up against obstacles, whether it's outright persecution or just opposition in their ministry, and that has strengthened their faith rather than derailed their faith. These are all great things that Jesus is, is noticing. Later on in verse 6, He commends them for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans, contemporary people, false teachers in that church who were luring the people away from biblical faithfulness through sexual immorality in the name of religion. 
all good stuff. Church seems to be doing well. But, verse 4, there's a fatal flaw. You've forsaken the love you had at first. You've turned away. You've forgotten the love affair we've had, Jesus says. Again, more... um, scriptural examples of this. Back in Jeremiah chapter 2 in the Old Testament, the Lord says this to Jerusalem uh, a few years before the city is destroyed in judgment. He says, this is what the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. And, And you could rightly assume that the Lord is saying, I remember because it is no more. It's something he's looking back on as a reality in the past and longing for those days when there was this love affair. Uh, During Jesus' last week of life, he uh, is teaching his disciples in view of the temple, and they're asking him some good questions. He tells them uh, some things about the future, and he says this, "'Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me.'" At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I highlight or underline that key phrase uh, that Jesus shares with His disciples. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. You've lost your first love. Jesus is predicting this. And whatever you believe about the end of the world, wouldn't you agree that in today's world, it seems like increase in wickedness is an accurate phrase? Things are going down the tubes. There are atrocities committed against children and vulnerable women and the poor and the marginalized on the edges of Uh, society, the fringes, because of race or lust for power, wealth, pleasure. The danger comes when we look out there and shake our heads and wonder how the world has fallen apart. It didn't used to be like this. And the implication is that we are miraculously free from that mess. I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that. I've never thought of doing that. Uh, There's a we versus they, I versus they kind of mentality, isn't it? But Jesus, with 2,000 years, uh, 2,000 years ago, with perfect ability to look through time and see our hearts, would say, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Who's he talking to? Back in chapter 24 of Matthew's gospel, he's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to them out there, the bad people your increase in wickedness. He's saying to His followers, He's saying to those who believe in Him, He's speaking to the church because of the increase of wickedness. There and here, the love of most will grow cold. It's our hearts. It's our love that's in danger of growing cold as we breathe the same air of our culture that, yes, also has increasing wickedness. Two weeks ago, I asked us uh, to ask ourselves this question. What glory do you seek, your own or that of another? And, And another way of putting that is, 
Are you the most significant being in your life, or is God? And if God is, then other people are more significant than you. I'm not saying you're nobody, but do you think of others or only yourself? And that led to last week's question, what do you really love? If you say you're a follower of Christ, where's the love affair? Where's the evidence of affection? If you love someone or something else more than you love Jesus, the Savior and King, your heart will follow that. The Bible calls it an idol, and it enslaves you, and it will never satisfy you. Today, this question is really for those who are followers of Christ. So much of Scripture speaks to people who are of faith, and it's healthy and appropriate for uh, others, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you don't say you believe, to listen in. But these are the words that Scripture, God through Scripture and His servants would have followers of Christ, the church, listen to and consider. We need to look in the mirror to, uh, to look and, and find out whether we have indeed lost our first love individually and as a church. You know, my educated guess from years of counseling in the church is that the majority of marriages, let's continue to use that metaphor, in this room have some significant issues. I'm not saying they're on the rocks, those marriages. I'm not saying they're headed for divorce. I'm saying that there are significant issues in some of the marriages that you look across and you think, oh, that's a, that's a couple that has it all together. Years of counseling have convinced me usually that's not the case. And yet, most couples won't come in for counseling. Some because of denial, or not that bad, others have it worse. And some because of embarrassment um, and shame, at the root of which is pride. I don't want to admit, I don't want anyone to see me walking into the pastor's office I don't want to, um, anyone to think that we're less than okay keeping it together by the strength of our will. But any turn from unhealth to health, spiritually, physically, emotionally, requires an understanding of what's going on, a diagnosis. And so, doctor says, chiropractor says, it's a herniated disc. A doctor says to somebody else, it's cancer. Or to somebody else, you have an allergy to something you eat every single day. Whether it's serious or moderate, the diagnosis helps you to think, okay, I know what I'm up against now. Now let's go do something about it. So here's the, the beginning of diagnosing. Is your heart cold towards Jesus? You need to ask yourself that question. Have you lost your first love? How do you know? Let me suggest some ways we can diagnose ourselves, spiritually speaking. First is worship a discipline and a commitment in your life. There's a public, we call it corporate, together version of worship, and there's an individual, private version of worship. Uh, Corporate, public, is Sunday worship attendance something that fits around the rest of your life when it's convenient? And when it's not, it goes by the wayside. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir. You happen to be here this morning. Privately, do you prioritize reading your Bible? 
and chewing on it and praying through it on a daily basis. If not, every one of us at some point would have to say, I've lost my first love. I've not cultivated it. And if you've lost your first love, your complaints about the increase of wickedness out there are just noise. Why do I say that? Because you don't see that you're part of the problem and you're not trusting the real solution which is provided through God's salvation plan, not by humanity's better decisions. Because if you trusted in God's salvation plan, you'd go to Him in prayer and Scripture more than you'd kvetch and hem and haw about what's going on out there and how this election season is going to dictate the future of this country. No. The sovereign king is still on his throne. Second diagnostic, I I asked this question at least in, in brief form two weeks ago, but it's a key diagnostic. How do you spend your time and money? Does your calendar reflect the priorities of God's kingdom? Do you spend any amount of time serving others, extending hospitality, giving sacrificially, or is it all for you to enjoy however much you can to maximize your recreation, your leisure, your pleasure? A third diagnostic, do you know God better than you did when you first professed faith? Whatever that looks like. Maybe it was a year ago. You're a new Christian. Maybe it was 40 years ago. You've grown up in the faith. Do you know God better? What does better mean? What does it require? Knowing anyone better requires spending intimate time with them, right? In conversation, sharing life, living together. Spiritually speaking, that includes worship, public and private. Better requires, spiritually speaking, repentance of sin, and growth in gospel grace. And so both at the same time, I know myself to be worse off than I ever thought. That's better, spiritually speaking. And I know Jesus' substitute sacrifice on the cross to be bigger than I ever realized it was. That's better. Both together. Do you know God better than you did X amount of time ago? Can you sketch out even one chapter of your grace story? We've got three new ones coming starting next Sunday. If not, you've lost your first love. In Eugene Peterson's contemporary Bible translation called The Message, this is how he captures Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Why do so many of us become so well-adjusted to our culture that we look like everyone else? Because we've lost our first love. Because we're seeking self-glory rather than the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Because our, our hearts are, are held onto, perhaps even owned by something or someone other than the true King Himself. Lastly, divorce-proofing faith. There's a question mark there. Can this be done? No and yes, in that order. You can't divorce-proof your faith first. No, because there's no easy solution. There's no magic trick. There's no shortcut. 
maintaining love, we've already said this, whether in a human marriage or in the marriage of God's salvation plan between every believer in Jesus Christ and the bridegroom himself, maintaining love requires commitment and sacrificial time spent together, cultivating intimacy, experiencing, extending forgiveness, and receiving grace back. Yes, there are some things we can do to protect our faith against disaster, especially because here in Revelation chapter 2, after Jesus points out the Ephesian church's fatal flaw, He doesn't say, game over. He didn't say, it's too late. He says, you've lost your first love, but He gives them something to chase after. And He tells them to repent, verse 5. It's, it's a word with a bad rap. Um, it, it's misused and it's abused, but the word repent simply means to turn, and most often to turn around. So you're heading north when you should be heading south. Turn around, repent. What you think is up is actually down. Reverse your way of thinking. Repent. Change drastically. How? That's a sermon series all by itself. But let me share one word. Remember. It's a very biblical idea. Remember your first love. At Mount Sinai, uh, when God is revealing the Ten Commandments through Moses for the benefit of the, His people, the Israelites, this is what He begins with. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, remember? My insertion. Out of the land of slavery. He starts there, and they couldn't help but remember. It had just happened weeks ago. And then He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you remember what I did for you? Out of love, you were the fewest of all peoples, Deuteronomy has God telling the Israelites. Do you remember the extent to which God has demonstrated and spoken to His people throughout all of time, I am your one and only, I am your beloved, your spouse, there is no other. There can be no other. Um, I, I read through, uh, as I read through Scripture during my sabbatical this summer, one thing was uh, striking as a refreshment in my mind. Um, how repetitive was the unfaithfulness of God's people and how much I needed to guard myself against thinking, really? <laughs> Again? right? Because that's the we versus they. No, that's me. How repetitive was the unfaithfulness of God's people? It is ugly, the Old Testament. But also, how repetitive was the grace and mercy of God in His willingness to forgive yet again? There's beauty in the Old Testament. This lover of our souls has gone to such lengths, highlighted by the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, who went to His death and experienced hell in our place. For the Lord to demonstrate His affection towards those who are unlovely and even unlovable. Do you remember these things? If you are part of the church, a follower of Jesus Christ, do you know that love story? Have you read it again 
and again? Do you remember its details? Because when you do, and a worship service is one primary occasion for that remembrance, we, we go through what we call a liturgy, uh, not because uh, we're supposed to, because people of old have done that, but because we're telling and retelling and recreating the story of redemption in prayer and Scripture and song. We are saying when we show up on Sunday mornings, I need to remember these things because even in six days I have forgotten. The world has pressed upon me in its demands, in its wickedness. It has prompted my own wickedness in response, and I need to remember what God has done. The Lord's Supper is uh, partly about remembrance. Jesus Himself said, do this in remembrance of me. Do you look back on the cross or do you just come forward and put bread and wine in your mouth and you've done the religious thing? God calls us to reflect on these symbols that point us back to reality and history that define all of uh, history. That event 2,000 years ago. I, I deliberately use A.D., if you notice, Anno Domini, and not the common era. I don't, I don't fault uh, historians and you know, um, others out of the church for using common era. But absolutely, before Christ and the year of the Lord, Jesus' coming defines all of history. Do you remember these things? As you do, the only proper response is worship, to see Him as the one who is most worthy of praise and as the only proper target of your heart's affections. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the lover of our souls. You have demonstrated love divine, all loves excelling. Amazing grace is amazing because of pure love from You being extended to undeserving sinners like us. But that's the lopsided marriage that you chose for yourself, Lord, and you are making us beautiful. You're making us pure. Lord, guard our hearts from losing our first love. Let us remember you and respond freshly this day and for the next generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.